Hey there, I'm the Kentucky Guy, and thank you so much for listening to the Red Pill Current News Podcast. Here at the Red Pill Current News Podcast, we strive on bringing you news that you won't find in the fake media every day. We also strive to bring you the truth, not only on politics, but the world news all around, including pop culture and so forth. As for myself, I worked in the private sector for around 25 years in the call center management and health insurance industry. Uh, Due to unforeseen circumstances and health issues, I was forced into early retirement last year. Now, a couple years ago, I noticed that something just wasn't sitting right with the way our country was being ran or being politicized as. So I started doing research. I did a lot of research. And that's why I'm able to now host this podcast. I've been on other shows as well, discussing my views. I'm also on social media. I'm on The Clapper, Rizzle, TikTok, Truth Social, Facebook, and many more. You can find me at the KY Guy, Kentucky Guy, KY Guy, or KY Guy 80. Different ones. Somebody had my name on other platforms, of course. <laughs> All right. So, yes, and I uh, do want to let you know that we do drop a new episode here every every Wednesday and Saturday. So be sure to uh, hit that follow or subscribe button. No matter where you're listening to, we're on all podcast platforms. All right. So I hope you enjoyed today's show. And again, God bless and God bless America. And welcome to the Red Pill Current News Podcast. I'm your host, the Kentucky Guy. Hope everybody is having a fantastic, beautiful day here in Eastern Kentucky on a Wednesday. I would like to let everybody know we do have a very special guest today. We'll get to him in just a moment. But before then, let's go over a couple of house cleaning items. Uh, Earlier today, special report on devolution number 18, part 2, was uploaded. So if you haven't had a chance, be sure to check that out for all of you that are following that series. Uh, Also, don't forget, we do have a new website. It is www.politicalnewspodcast.us. Politicalnewspodcast.us. Your first time listening, be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button. Uh, We are on all major platforms, including Pandora, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and the list goes on and on. Also, for you wrestling fans, I do co-host Against the Mat Wrestling Podcast with my partner, co-host. Better watch how I say partner these days, the way everything is. (laughs) Uh, My co-host only, uh, my co-host, Donnie Cage. And we drop new episodes there every uh, Monday and Friday. All right. And if you ever want to be a guest on the show or have any questions, be sure to reach out at OLKentuckySpelledOut99 at Yahoo.com. All right. So I am happy and I want a big warm welcome uh, for our special guest. Uh, He is here today with us. He is a uh, best-selling author, a uh, former U.S. military special agent, 
and uh, just uh, evident, uh, he's uh, the author of the new book, Atlantis Solved, The Final uh, Definitive Proof, which uh, I'm so excited to hear more about. Guys, give a big hand to David Edwards. Hey, sir, how you doing? I'm doing good, Kentucky guy. How are you? Ah, uh, doing fantastic, fantastic. So, uh, sir, since this is your first time on the show, uh, if you want to go ahead and give our audience just a little bit of background, we'd definitely appreciate it. Sure, yeah. So, currently I'm writing books. I'm an old guy, so I've, I've done all kinds of things. And by the way, I, I did want to point out, I'm also in Ocala, Florida, and we call Ocala, Florida, the Kentucky of the South, so I feel like we're probably, you know, kin on some level, even though... You know, it's not the real Kentucky. Hey, my dad used to live in uh, um, uh, Austin, Austin, St. Augustine, uh, Florida. Yeah, yeah so yeah. Uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. There is a place there that's called Kissimmee, Florida. Are you familiar mm -hmm. with it? Yeah. yeah so that, I am familiar with it. Okay, so that place there, there's a funny story. Uh, I was actually there one time at the McDonald's uh, grabbing something. We were driving through and uh, headed to, I think, Orlando or somewhere. And this guy and his wife are sitting there and they're arguing, arguing, arguing over the name Kissimmee. Because he's saying, he thinks it says Kissimmee, Florida. Kissimmee. Right? Yep. And uh, the, so they keep arguing and they finally get up to the counter. And this guy is standing there, you know, the employee. And he's like, uh, what can I help you with? The lady speaks up because she's had enough. And I thought it was hilarious because she was kind of loud. And she goes, will you please, for the love of God, sir, tell my husband where we're at. The dude looks at him straight face and on. And he goes, sir, you are at. McDonald's. <laughs> yep, <laughs> yeah, that's that's Kissimmee. And by the way, it is a confusing name. It's, it's not Mississippi, right? It's Mississippi, so it's you know it's just it's just like a choice. The locals, I guess, decide on how they want it pronounced. Right, exactly. But I didn't mean to interrupt. I just uh, I always found that joke funny when anybody was from Florida. So wanted to tell that. Yeah, no, I love that kind of name. Yeah, so so basically, so I guess my my I mean my, the the three sentence answer is. Um, I uh, dropped out of college, joined the military, uh, was a special agent for a while, realized that uh, college was a lot better than that, so I went back to college. I actually have a doctorate in engineering, three other master's degrees. Um, I've been president of a university. I, as we mentioned, I was a special agent in the military, and I actually I invaded Panama and caught Noyega and First Gulf War, all that kind of stuff. Um, currently, what I'm doing is I'm writing books. I've written about 45 books. Um, if you can believe it, and they're about evenly split between um, just history books and uh, fiction, historical fiction. Basically, most of my books take place um, you know, at least twenty years ago, if not if not much much longer ago. And the Atlantis book kind of fits kind of in the middle. So it, it's absolutely a history book, but it's a topic that many people don't take maybe as seriously uh, as they could. So it was really a fun. Fun book to write. It's been a fun book to get out there and listen to some of the feedback, both positive and uh, less than positive, because um, everyone everyone believes something. It turns out. Now, are uh, these books are all these books uh, published books or are they ebooks or uh, the, the reason why I'm asking is because uh, I am actually right in the square middle of uh, writing my first ebook, so I was just kind of curious. Oh yeah, no, they're all um, they're they're they're. All of them are available as ebooks on Kindle or Barnes and Noble or you know Amazon, whatever. And then they're also available as paperbacks. Um, I briefly tried publishing the hardback route, but I don't really honestly have the audience for it. I've, I've done pretty good. I've got a hundred thousand books out in my Dirk Lasher series, um, but it's mostly. I think I'm evenly split. I'm I'm probably 
I'm probably 60% ebook and 40% paperback on, on what people choose to buy from me. Yeah, okay. I get, yeah, and I've seen, uh, when doing my research, I, I noticed that uh, Panama Red, uh, boy, that's a, that was a good seller for you. It, it had very high ratings. Panama Red, it just hit 300 reviews on Amazon and 200 reviews or something like that, maybe more than 200, on, on Goodreads. I never in my life thought I'd have a book that, and any less than 1% of the people who review the book, I think there's been like 60,000 uh, sales of that one, and then about half the people that read it, maybe a little less than half, go on and, and read the rest of the series. So, yeah, it's a, and it was a fun book to write. That, that book, um, I kind of took some of my experiences as a special agent in Panama before we invaded because it was kind of the wild, wild west. We, you know, we had the Russians screwing with us and, and we had Iran-Contra, which was just before I got there, and the Colombians and all the, the drug trade and Noriega and what he was trying to do with banking and the Panamanian Defense Force, just all that stuff. And I, I, I took some of the actual things that happened and completely fiction, fictionalized them, but put them as kind of what they call, you know, the, the, um, the main, the main scenes, the, in the book and he kind of built a, a good story around that that has continued i'm actually working on the sixth book in the series now um so it's a fun it's a fun place to spend some time yeah absolutely um i'm actually uh in the process of uh uh ordering it <laughs> and reading it myself <laughs> uh uh yeah I'm, I'm, a good I'm, I'm a history buff man i mean i am uh so anything like that so i guess my well go ahead I was going to say, just to finish on Panama Red, the, the funny thing, if you read the, the critical reviews, the, the, the only real criticism of the book, and don't get me wrong, I, I have people, my books are not the best books in the world, people do criticize them, uh, but the main criticism of Panama Red is that they say, a few people think I spent too much time giving, people, giving you the history of what's going on, which I don't think, I think that just adds to the story, but you'll learn something in Panama Red about the time, as, as well as read a pretty fun adventure book. Well, yeah, I mean, that's the kind of stories I like, if... Uh if you don't know the uh, blueprint, I call it the history of the book, or or what the author's talking about, uh, I, I get lost pretty easy. So uh, if you exactly. if you captivate me right at the beginning with the history, then I'm in. So um, on your Atlantis book, um, and you're right, uh, a lot of people they kind of think of this subject as taboo. Um, I am uh, the type of person, though, uh, I'm not afraid of anything. <laughs> Uh, on this book, is it a is it is it considered a fiction book or nonfiction? Oh no, this is so. I mentioned I've got I did pretty good with my education after I got out of the army. I actually put myself in because I started college and I realized I honestly I I didn't have the tools necessary. Um, so the military gave me those. Um, I've taken, and I'm a modern person, you're a modern person, you know, we, we have modern methodologies and, and research standards, and there's a scientific method and all of those things, and I use all of that in this Atlantis book. It is um, uh, a meticulous uh, scientific um, uh, combing through of what we can know, and one of the things I say in the book is, you know, we got, we got to go back to the source material, and we got to push everything else we've ever heard aside, and look at this thing with fresh eyes. And it's hard to do. It's hard for me to do. It's hard for the reader to do. It'll be hard for you to do, because we've heard so much. I mean, there's a huge problem with Atlantis. If I had any clout at all, I wouldn't touch this subject, because, you know, it's a it's a career killer, right? And it's you're kind of going off into... Uh, uh, a clown shoe, you know, balloon land. Uh, but I don't have any clout, so I, I can I can do this. Um, but the problem with Atlantis is it's been beaten to death. 
I mean, it has, there, there has been, we have two centuries of stupid speculation um, and people taking pieces of it and then kind of morphing it and lying to you and claiming it fits and making stuff up and ignoring other things, all of that. So in the book, the first thing I say is we have a couple problems. The first problem is going to be if Atlantis can be anything and if it can be anywhere, then it, we're going to have a hard time getting past that and accepting that it's just something, which is what I believe we found in the book. Um, so, so, I mean, so that's, that's a real... Uh, challenge for us, number one. Number two, uh, we have to go back to the source material and figure out what, what Plato was telling us, because he's the only primary source for Atlantis. There, there are other ancillary supporting sources that I find and, and present to the reader uh, as um, uh, support for what Plato says, but by themselves, you know, they're not quite enough, and we can get into all of this. Uh, but when you, when you do that, and you start to look at all these other places that, have, that people say might be Atlantis, um, you know, they, they don't really fit the bill. Uh, the other challenge we have is many people will tell you that Plato just made it up, and he's not even trying to tell you something that's true. And the book, we, we tackle that in the book, it's one of the first things we tackle in the book. That, the language, the translations, kind of all this stuff, which by the time we're done, um, we have a checklist of, 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 of um, criteria that have to be met for some place to fit Plato's description for real, not ignoring anything and all of that. And, and I go through all of that. I lay it out very methodically in the book. It's still, it's a fun read. Um, by the time we get to the end, uh, this place, the Rishat structure, which is in uh, Mauritania in the Western Sahara, matches what Plato told us like 99.32%. And it's the only place on the planet, it's the only place in the universe that, that matches everything specifically without us having to ignore anything, change anything, decide he got something wrong, think he's an idiot, any of that stuff. Uh, 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 amazing. Um, so, uh, I mean, I guess everybody's question, where is Atlantis? <laughs> so, so the, the easiest way, so let's, let's and, and, and we'll build up how we know this. So you're the kind of person, Kentucky guy, who likes to read the last page of a book, right? Before, uh, <laughs> before you decide you're going to commit to it. Yep, okay. yep, yep. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> so, okay, the, there, there's uh, visually, it, to find the city, the lost city of Atlantis, what we have to find is what Plato says and, and, and the picture that we've all grown accustomed to, which is a city on a series of islands that has a center island and then has uh, a two concentric rings of alternating land and water, right? The circles. That That's kind of the... the um, it has, to, it has to meet that. We have to be able to see that. So if anyone listening goes and types in uh, Rishat uh, Structure, which is um, R-I-C-H-A-T, Rishat Structure, you're going to find it. It's all over the internet. You're going to find this uh, pictures of it in the Western Sahara. And the first thing you're going to notice is that this is a geological formation uh, that has a center, and then it has those two concentric rings of, of tall land and lower land, which would exactly fit. What, what Plato described. Um, and it's the only real place that has that, honestly. Um, there's lots of other things that people have said, Santorini's an island, but Santorini doesn't have this configuration. None of the other places have this configuration. So it, it, it fits that part of the, the description. Um, now there's a couple challenges with this place. Uh, we're, we're used to thinking that Atlantis is an island in the sea. But that's not actually what Plato says. Uh, the, the translation uses the word island, but he uses this word V-N-O-O-S, uh, which in ancient Greek uh, is the root of the word that became island. It's also the root of the word in English that became nose, like the nose on your face. And what that word actually means is um, a piece of land sticking up or, stick, or sticking up or jetting out into water that looks like a nose. Well, 
that's if you look at Gilligan's Island, right? Any island, if, if a person's laying down and, and their nose is sticking up, um, you know, an island looks like a nose. But it's, it's not just that view. It could also be the profile view. Um, so the other thing that Plato says that everyone ignores, and it's a line, I, I always read this line because there's, there's two pieces I read that, that are kind of amazing. Um, the, the first is that he says that the city, this, this city of Atlantis, was on a level plain um, surrounded by mountains to the north open to the south, and that the plane was of an oblong shape, and it extended 3,000 stadia to the sea. Um, so what's a stadia? I guess that'd be the first question. And a stadia is an uh, um, ancient unit of measurement we're dealing with what they call the Alexandrian measure. It, it turns out to 607 feet. So when you look at this Rishat structure, the first thing we have to do is, does it, look, does it have the characteristic we need, which is the, the rings of land? It does. Um, is it, is it where Plato says it is, 3,000 stadia um, up a river, you know, up a plain from the sea, and, and it actually is. 3,000 stadia, if you multiply 607 feet by 3,000, you get 345 miles. And, and anyone can go look, in fact, the, the entire book, everything I do is actually following the scientific method, un unlike everything any, pretty much you've ever seen on this, because it's, typically the formula is, is the first half of the, the TV show or the book or the conversation is they kind of set you up make you think they got it. And then the second half is, okay, well, in order for this place to be, you know, we got to ignore this, change this, blah, 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 blah. And they always ignore that he tells us it's 345 miles inland because it's not convenient. There isn't, there isn't very many places that can, that has this configuration that, that, that could do that. So, yeah, so, so that's the first thing. The other thing he tells us, he actually gives us a description. You know, we're all familiar with where he says it sank something along the lines of, it, it, you know, it, it, there was a cataclysm and the city of Atlantis with earthquakes sank into the sea in a day and a night, uh, which is what a tsunami would do if it came up this gentle sloping plain. Uh, matter of fact, uh, the tallest tsunami that we've ever run into that we've recorded in, in our history is uh, uh, 1,700 feet high. And we would only need one about half of that to, to reach um, where the structure is. But here's the other thing he says, and if anyone does go Google this and you look at these pictures, he says that, um, and he's, this is Plato through Critias, who's the character in Plato's dialogue, and I'll, we can back up and explain all that. But he says that he's describing what, what, what does the land look like after one of these cataclysms that you know, wipes out civilization. He, and he says, the earth has fallen away all around and sunk out of sight. The consequence is that the comparison of what was then, there are remaining only the bones of the wasted body, as they may be called, as in the case of small islands, all the richer and softer parts of the soil having fallen away and the mere skeleton of the land being left. And so anyone, when you go look at this Rishat structure, you, you're looking at bedrock, and it is absolutely only the skeleton of the land um, that remains. Uh, he tells us other things about Atlantis. He tells us that there were mountains to the north and it was open to the south. So you look at the Rishat structure, there are mountains to the north, and it was open. it's open to the south. He tells us the king was named Atlas. Well, about 200 miles north of this place, you have the Atlas Mountains. So we, we start to have some, some linguistic, you know, comparable linguistics um, that, that fit for this location. He tells us that uh, the Atlanteans had dug a canal, 50 stadia, from the outer ring uh, to um, an inner harbor. When you look at the, uh, so, and 50 stadia is uh, 607 feet times 50, which is like 5.8 miles. When you look at, which gives us the radius of the, of the whole land structure, right? So when you look at the Wishat structure and you measure from the outer ring to the inner ring, or and it actually a place where that would have been an inner harbor that you can see, it's 5.8 miles. You know, so we get stuff like this. And, and, and he's got about, there's about 25 things that can be measured in, in his dialogue. And, uh, if you literally measure them and you apply them to this Rishat structure, they all fit. Uh, 
So it's kind of amazing. Uh, you know, so, so what are the chances that the Plato would describe something, you know, 2,800 miles away, 3,000 miles away from, from where he is and, and get it, you know, this right? But, but it's not that easy, right? We can't just find a piece of land and say, oh, it looks like it matches, this must be Atlantis. So what we also have to do is we have to understand, like, like I said, what the words meant to Plato, which we touched on a little bit, but we also have to understand what, understand what was going on on the planet at the time period he says that this thing existed. And he gives us what initially feels like um, a, a difficult time period to make line up. He tells us that um, this guy named Solon, who was an early Greek politician. So Plato's writing this around 360 BCE. Um, and Solon, and, so that, and that's, in, that's towards the end of what the Greeks call their classical uh, period. So they, they've had uh, the Greek Bronze Age, they've had the Dark Ages, and then they kind of had their um, up, you know, rebuilding, and then they had the Classic Period, and then they kind of fall off and give way to the Romans um, after Alexander the Great conquers, you know, uh, conquers uh, Asia. So he tells us that, that Solon went to Egypt in, uh, in 600 BCE, or, or, you know, that many years, 300 years before uh, he's writing, uh, and he was there because the Greeks were starting to emerge uh, socially and starting to organize themselves, and they were trying to figure out how do you be a, you know, what, what is a good way to organize yourselves? What, what does it mean to be a politician? And of course, Egypt was a place you would go because they had a long, uh, storied history. And he went there and he learned all kinds of things and, and focused on all kinds of things. Uh, he sat with the Egyptian priests for a long time, and they read to him all kinds of scrolls. One of the um, scrolls they read to him was the Egyptian ancient history. So we have the Egyptian priests who have maintained their history, and they're reading it to this guy Solon, who's taken, taken copious notes. Um, matter of fact, one of the myths of Plato's Atlantis is that it's an oral tradition passed down for hundreds of years, so of course, how could Plato have gotten it right? But, when, but Plato actually tells us that's not the case. Uh, he tells us that Solon wrote it all down in a scroll, uh, or Codex, he's telling us that still exists, and the person in his dialogue who's talking is named Critias, and Critias is Solon's like great-great-great-grandson, and Critias has the scroll, and he's read it, and he's recanting in this dialogue what it says. So, so there is no danger of oral tradition or the, you know, the, 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 the telephone game where the story is, is changing. Um, and then they, the Egyptians told Solon that this history they're telling him took place 9,000 years uh, you know, before now. So you, you add the 600 BC and the 9,000 years and you get this date 9600 BCE, uh, which is a, a pretty long time ago. Um, but that's a very important date. So we have now, we mentioned physically Plato's description matches the Rishat structure. And there are a couple of criticisms that, that make sure we get to before we're done. But now we start looking at the time period. And 9600 BC is, is really interesting for, for a couple of reasons. Uh, it, it, the nice thing about this Rishat structure, too, is that unlike every other place that's ever been said to be Atlantis, those places all require you to argue with what they call mainstream academics or historians or change something somewhere in, in this primary source material. Uh, we don't have to do any of that. Uh, what we think right now today, 9600 BCE, we were uh, hip deep in what they call the pre-pottery Neolithic, around the Mediterranean, um, in this place is uh, within those types of civilizations. And what that means is pre-pottery just means this was before people started cooking mud, um, which is what you do to make pots. Instead, there were uh, a Stone Age 
uh, civilization. That's what the Neolithic means. That just means new, you know, Neo and Lithic. That means new, st new stone. So it's basically the new stone age coming out of the ice age, which also amazingly ended exactly at this date, 9600 BCE. Uh, so we're in the pre-Pottery and Neolithic, um, and then we have this event called the Younger Dryas. And it's a silly name. There's three dryases. A dryas is a plant that we can measure today and figure out what the temperatures were when it was around. Um, so you have the younger dryas, the older dryas, and the oldest dryas going back in time. Uh, but the end of the younger dryas is also the end of the last ice age, and it abruptly ended in 9600 uh, BC. Within a year, the temperature of the planet went up 40 degrees or so, and it looks like there's a lot of um, upheaval. So now Plato has given us uh, uh, a date that fits in with what we know about the planet in our history, where things were, were getting bumpy, and it very much could have been something, you know, a tsunami, which is probably what it was, or earthquakes or whatever, that, that could have destroyed um, a, a series of islands in a big lake I I at this location. So that's pretty interesting. Um, now, the other thing that people say um, is that Plato made it up. They'll say, you know, so, okay, so, he, you know, he's, he's like, uh, uh, what's the guy, Casey's name or whatever, who, who did the Bimini Road, he's, you know, he's like, he, he was, uh, or Nostradamus, he, you know, he, he channeled into the future, and we have to ignore the fact that he got the location exactly right, and he got the time period exactly right, because uh, he probably made it up. But Plato himself tells us that he's not making this up, and he's very good about telling us when he is making stuff up. Um, we, he wrote a political dialogue, um, where he, he imagines things and he says, okay, well, let, let's all myth, let's get back to reality. Uh, he wrote a dialogue called The Laws, uh, where he talks about um, past cataclysms and stuff. And then he, you've got the two dialogues that talk about Atlantis, which is uh, Critias, and Timius, which is what we're, we're dealing with now. Now, Plato's most famous dialogue was called The Republic. And this is, it's his most quoted, and it's where most of the things that we kind of as lay people, when we think of Plato, what we're thinking about that someone told us or we heard probably came from the Republic. And all of us carried the Republic around with us when we were in 10th grade for probably two months, and none of us read it. It's a big, thick, big, thick book. Um, in the Republic, uh, he goes through a period where he's talking about, he says, uh, you know, let, let's imagine what a, a perfect society might look like. But he says, we're going we're gonna to pretend, we're going to do a thought experiment, we're going to make it up. Uh, then later, he gives us an allegory, he says, this is an allegory, and he's trying to describe, what Plato worried about was, um, you know, how do you know what the right thing to do is? What does justice look like? What, what, is, what happens when um, the people who are in charge uh, do things and exert their will it's not the right thing to do, but they're able to do it because they have the power, right? So is, is justice just the will of the, 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 the powerful, you know, that kind of stuff. The same stuff we, we struggle with today. Um, but he tells us that um, uh, in the Republic, he tells us he's going to give us an allegory of the cave. And, and so his, his idea is, look, if justice is this perfect thing that we can all imagine, then how do we know when we see it? Because whatever we see is just a shadow of the perfect thing and, and, and all of that. But, but those are all allegories. When it comes to Atlantis, he says, he says, here's how I got it. Here's a chain of custody, so long, Critias, written down, and we all believe this to be true. Which, you know, so so we're dealing with what we think is some pretty good information. Yeah, absolutely. My, uh, yeah. And he, uh, so when it comes to the lost city of Atlantis, there are so many different stories out there because 
uh, I remember when I was doing research for this interview, um, it looked like at one time uh, a place, and I don't know how to pronounce it, it's A-Z-O-R-E-S, was believed to be the site of the city. And now most of your uh, scientists, I guess you can call them, think that the city can be found in a, it's between Spain and Morocco waters. Um, yeah, so. Yeah. So, so that yeah. So, so let's let's address both of those, and and let's get let's get through all the criticisms of, of Western Africa, the Western Sahara, the Mauritania, in this Rishat structure, which is also called the Eye of the Sahara. So, the, what we're talking about is the Azor Islands, um, and there's you know one. I used to love to debate politics. I know you're still brave enough to debate politics, um, but you know it's tough. It's hard to do that today. Uh, but it's fun to debate in the Atlanta space because you have kind of the same camps and you have, have the same passion, um, but it doesn't come with the underlying you know, anger and all the other things that, that politics does today. And in the Atlantis camp, there's two major camps, and I actually did a survey uh, to, to get this information. Uh, there's two major camps. Rishat uh, structure is a major camp, and that's that's the one I'm. Uh, uh, that that is the correct one. Let me put it that way. Then close behind it is the Azor Islands, and I'll explain. It's very complicated on how that could be Atlantis, but people think it is. Um, then there's a um, there's some uh, irrigation work found in Spain. Um, that looked interesting, and for a while people were like, there, we found it, that's Atlantis. Uh, and some people believe it's also uh, northern, like Ireland, over to Finland, kind of that area, because maybe during the last ice age, water was lower and there was something going on there. Those are kind of like the main ones. And then you have the Minoans inside um, the Mediterranean, and you know, and you have, you have other places, and, and you have Bimini Road, you, you have Peru, um, you know, all that kind of tangential stuff. Uh, but the two real strong competing ones are Rishat and Azores, and then close behind that is Spain. Um, but we know, but, but Plato tells us a, a, a lot of a, a lot about this. He gives us, he tells us that Atlantis was was three things. It was it had a capital city, so it was a city which was very unique uh, on this um, series of islands. Uh, he tells us that Atlantis was a continent, um, and he gives us the dimensions of it. He tells us it is bigger than Libya and Asia Minor. Uh, and when the Greeks talked Asia, Asia Minor, they really talked in Turkey, because that's where the Persians were, and that's who they were concerned with. And then he tells us there was also a maritime uh, a kingdom made up of ten provinces, one of the provinces being the capital city. Uh, some of the other provinces, it sounds like um, being places on the continent. And then he talks about diving islands. And we, we get all this through, um, he gives us the frenetic names of those places. He says that um, the provinces of Atlantis were um, divided amongst five sets of male twins. And he gives us a name. The eldest of the first set it was, was Atlas, who rules the capital city. And we have, we have the name Atlas, the Atlantic Ocean, the Atlas Mountains. You know, it, 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 we, we, we know that name. It's, it's all over this. And then he kind of goes through the rest. And I've actually been working phonetically. I can't figure them all out. But the eldest of the fifth set of twins, uh, he named Azores. And the name Azores comes from uh, the no one really knows where it comes from, but it comes from the Spanish uh, name uh, for the islands. Uh, now, Plato also tells us that the Atlanteans uh, grew warlike, and they conquered uh, uh, inside the Mediterranean, Libya as far as Egypt, and parts to the north of Europe. So what, why I think the Azor Islands 
are uh, in these provinces, which fit with everything else that's been found about them. And then I think Spain is is that northern part of um, Europe that he's talking about. Uh, so culturally, they're, they're, they have they have Atlantis roots, but they don't fit. They're not, not there's not three hundred and fifty miles of land, and they don't have the the other specific geographic characteristics to be the capital. But they don't have to be the capital. It, it all fits if you actually read what this guy wrote and and you know analytically look at it just a little bit. So he ta- he explains all of that. Um, the the challenge with the Azores. So here here's a theory on it being the Azores, um, and this comes from a guy named Randall Carlson, who's very famous. Uh, people like him very much. He's been on Joe Rogan. He has his own set of um, podcasts, and he's, he seems like a nice guy. I don't know him. I've, I've never talked to him. Um, the challenge I have with him is he has done a lot of really great research on kind of proving that something was going on in this 9600 BC. Uh, but he also, like, he'll talk about power crystals and, and, and astrology and, and stuff. that It's interesting, but I, I feel like it steps too far away from actual science um, to, to, to be brought into the com- conversation. Uh, but in order for the Azores to be Atlantis, we have to talk about, um, uh, what do they call it, uh, geo, what is it? It's, it's earth, earth crust displacement. Um, Oh, uh, Arctic, it's rebound. So basically the ice, there's ice caps on the North Pole and they come down so far into the Atlantic and they're heavy. So they're pushing down on the Atlantic shelf, which is very thin. And if they push down somewhere, then it pushes up somewhere else. And then he thinks that they push, push up the Azor Islands, um, and it, but it's, it's not, I mean, it, it's honestly nonsense. It, it doesn't, it, the ice caps were never that big. In order f- to get that type of displacement, they would have had to come down within like 500 miles of where the Azores are, which would mean that they're pushing down, not you know lifting the land up, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, Azores fits if we accept what Plato told us about it, which is it was a province ruled by the eldest of the fifth set of twins. Um, so, uh, yeah, so there. I don't, I don't want to ramble on, but that's kind right, of the answer to your question. Um, so what do you think about the uh, the very, very old legend that uh, Atlantis was actually built uh, by the god of the sea, you know, the storms, because he fell in love with a mortal uh, female. Do you think we... Well, that's what Plato, Plato, Plato tells us that. And and what's interesting about that description uh, is that he, the, the, the female that we were talking about lived kind of in the barbaric tribes to the north in the mountains. Well, that's where... That's, and there are mountains to, to the north, so so it gives us a, a geographic clue. Um, but remember, to the Greeks, Poseidon was the god of kind of our plane. We, we always think of him as the god of the sea, but it's really more than that. It's really the sea, earthquakes, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and Plato tells us that Atlanta, uh, that um, Poseidon um, uh, made this structure, which of course actually fits, because we believe. Currently, science thinks this is a, a volcanic, like an ancient volcanic dome. Well, Poseidon would have been uh, the god of, of volcanoes. So, so it makes sense. And, and unless we're going to argue that Poseidon was really a guy going around digging holes, right? Plato's actually telling us this thing was naturally formed through something that had to do with Poseidon, and that's exactly what we find. So that kind of stuff actually lines up with this Rishat structure as opposed to, um, you know, being a contradiction. Yeah, he actually went as far to say that... Uh the, the way he built the island was actually on top of a hill, and it was isolated by the sea to protect the mortal female that he fell in love with. Which is, and, and you know, here's the thing, and, and which is a really good description of the Rishat structure. 
really what you have is so what you have is you have you have islands. The, the Rishat would have been in the lake. So I, I so let's finish laying out. So during this time period, the other thing we know is that it wasn't just the end of the last ice age, but we were in something called the Green Sahara, and we know that there was this huge lake called Lake Chad. It would have been the biggest freshwater lake on the planet, kind of in the middle of Africa, and there were, there was a massive river that would have run kind of from um, what is now Mali uh, down through Mauritania through where this Rishat structure is, and then down a river. Um, and into the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, so where the Rishat structure is, it would have been a giant lake, and I mean, and you're talking like uh, ten miles on either on either side from from where the city is. Um, and it, this is like the best place to live in the world. It, it, it's um, it's like where I'm in Florida right now. It rains a lot. It's temperate. The land will grow just about anything. You're incredibly well protected. Um, animals can't get to you. Uh, there's no foe running around there that, that, that can attack you because it, you're so well insulated. It's like the U.S. today, right? Our two, our, our two best defenders are the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean. So it's like, why wouldn't people have lived on this thing? And we know, we're talking 9600 B.C., I don't think I mentioned this, but, but today it is accepted that agriculture, we start to see uh, hunter-gatherers transitioning to agriculture around 10,000 B.C., so this is part, it's part of the last ice age, 10,000 B.C. So when you get to 9,600 B.C., people have been doing agriculture now for 400 years. So if you found this ideal place to live that's completely protected, it's as bountiful as it, anything could ever be, uh, you have water, you have stuff to grow, um, why wouldn't civilization have, have taken hold here? We know there were people there. We find tools, um, and we find rock tools, nothing contradictory to what we would expect to find based upon you know, the pre-pottery Neolithic. Um, and, and Plato even tells us what, what the Atlanteans were good at and what they weren't. Plato never tells us that they had uh, nuclear submarines or spaceships or death rays. You know, that, that thing's just all nonsense. But what he says is they found a great place to live. Uh, they were really good at agriculture, and he goes on to explain that. And, and, and we found traces... I, I, I work with people that have been to the site, and we're going back in October, and, and we found massive traces of ancient agriculture. I can I can get into the stuff that we found there, um, and it's just it's just this place you know ends up being uh, a, a really good place. To, oh, oh, the other thing Plato tells us is that the Atlanteans he liked the way that they organized themselves. So they had they had these provinces, um, and then they had a rule. And the rule was that all the all the princes in the provinces couldn't go rogue and go off on their own. Um, they couldn't attack each other. And if any one of them got attacked, then they would whoever attacked them would be rebutted by all ten of them. So really, you have NATO, right? I mean, you have you have you have a a, um, a social structure that, for its time, was very very advanced. And that's what when we use the term advanced, that's what we're talking about. He also tells us that they, I mentioned they, they conquered uh, Libya up as far as Egypt and parts of um, Europe to the north of the Mediterranean. Uh, but when they got to Greece, um, the, the Greeks, whatever was going on with the Greeks, and you know, we're talking 9600 BCE, so these, are, these would be pre-Greeks. Um, it, it, you know, it's not the, the, what we think of today. With, it's not the 300 movie Greeks. Those, those guys came later. But whatever they were doing, they had uh, the military wherewithal to push the Atlanteans back because they beat them. So the Atlanteans lost. So they were good at agriculture, they were good at organizing themselves, but they weren't some kind of rampant war advanced society because they, they met their match. And so that kind of, tells us that. Uh, with you, uh, it kind of um, disproves the theory, and I've heard this theory too, 
that uh, Atlantis had uh, connections with like uh, extraterrestrial and uh, was at one time on Mars. <laughs> well, look, I, 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 I had people. I had people get very angry with me for, for my views on this. Um, but not, so, here, so here's my my methodology is. Uh, Plato is the Plato's Timaeus and Critias is the source material. We're going to take it as, as, as literal because Plato tells us it's literally true. And then, if we can find corroborating sources, and there are two, I want to make sure I mention that I found. We're, we're going to see if they support Plato's um, uh, account, and they do. But all the rest of the stuff, it, it does. It came from nowhere. It, 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 it's it's just made up, um, and it really makes it difficult to, to get the message out around what Atlantis probably was. Uh, which it was probably what I've said it was here. It was a group of people living on this thing. They found a great place to live and uh, had a little bit of wherewithal. And you know, yeah. um, and it's uh, also something that actually backs up what you were saying is that uh, it was rich, uh, kind of like rich in farmland too. Um, one, two things that uh, I read that were kind of interesting. I want to get your take on them. Uh, I guess the first one would be uh, the Captivation Palace. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? The captivation oh, it was the home that uh, Placidius uh, built for his love. You mean yeah. the, you're talking about the center island still? Yeah. So, so what? What he tells us, and here's what he tells us. So he says that Plato says that um, uh, you when you saw it. First off, he says the mountains were beautiful. He said the agriculture was incredible, and the work that they had done. He said you wouldn't you wouldn't believe that just people alone um, could do it. But they started with you know pretty pretty good um, a pretty good place, and they just worked really hard at it. And he tells us, yeah, he tells us that there was a center island that was I believe five stadia across, and on it was a palace. And then he um, talks about the type of metal uh, it was made from, which we think is a combination of bronze and gold, but. Um, it, it, we don't know what it is, but it supposedly it, it kind of gleamed in the light. He tells us that there was um, a, a quarry uh, under the island, which we can see. You can see that on the Rishat structure. If you look on the center landmass, there's a piece of it towards the south that has been dug out, which also would have been where the inner harbor was. Uh, he tells us that the stones were red, white, and black, which is of the exact type of stones we find there. And he tells us that um, they built walls all around it, and then he goes into some detail around... Um, uh, I mentioned the, the canal they dug, but also how they put bridges up and how many boats could pass under them and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so he yeah, he tells us absolutely that, that the center island had the, had the palace. It was five stadia, you know, um, um, and there was a harbor. I think you mentioned something about, like, five rings of water and uh, uh, five tunnels, like you were mentioning. Uh, and I don't know. Five, five rings of water, I don't know. There, there's, there's two sets of concentric rings um, and then the outer lake. Uh, okay. This is what I'm familiar with. And then also, um, so you mentioned the twins already, so you, you've already discussed that. Um, it, I did read somewhere that the uh, uh, Atlantis, who was the um, one of the first uh, rulers, I guess you could call them, uh, over the city, that they built a golden statue of a poison. Is that correct? Okay. Says, yeah. um, is that is that statue like? Is it still standing in your in your observation or? Uh, no, no. Look, this place. I, I I read that passage about it's been it's been blasted down to its bones. And when you look, all that's left now is um, bedrock. 
and tons and tons and tons of, of, of rocks. Now, some of the people that have been there, they found rocks that are uh, fairly um, you know, regular and they look you know, square, like maybe they've been worked. But, I mean, this is, this is a long time ago. That, that's not the kind of stuff we're going to find. We're not going to find a statue sticking out of the sand you know, with its arm up in the air or something. Um, although I do uh, think I know where we might find some stuff which is kind of halfway between where this place is and the sea. Because what Plato does tell us is that after this tsunami event, um, the, you know, the tops or anything was kind of pulled off and it was pulled down and blocked the waterway and it, and with a big shawl of mud. So that means there could be stuff you know, farther down from here. Um, but what, the, what we have to work with now is we have the, the remnants of um, anything they did uh, and then, now we're very lucky, because he mentions agriculture. And when he talks about agriculture, he says that there was a, a massive plain. It was 2,000 stadia by 3,000 stadia and 10,000 stadia all the way around, um, which fits, by the way, into this part of uh, uh, Africa. But then he tells us that on this, there were 60,000 10 stadia by 10 stadia farms. And each one of those had an owner. Uh, kind of like a land baron, whatever you want to call it. And they had to, they had to contribute um, you know, chariots or, or, or people you know, to the war effort and or tribute taxes and all that stuff. Um, but when you... When you uh, there's two places that I've found uh, that show massive uh, ancient canals and ancient workings. that they, It looks like, to me proto-terrace farming, and we also know that terrace farming, it's everywhere now, uh, but it's really big uh, in the Atlas Mountains, just to the north of this place, which is, of course is where people would go if Atlantis got blown up. But here's the cool thing, and, and this is what's going to, I'm working on a, a second book, but this is what's going to prove it, because everyone, everyone wants some proof. And they want to find a pyramid, like Egypt, but that, that's, that came after. Even people that believe the pyramids are older than, than we're told, they don't push them back to, to 10,000 BCE. They push them back to six, seven, eight thousand 8,000 um, BCE. But you have this thing, so if, if a tsunami hit this place, wiped everything out, then there would have been a lot of water that eventually drained off. That put a ton of salt all over the, the western Sahara. And of course, today, what is the, the country of Mauritania, where this place is, well, what is its primary source of income? Salt mines, because of all the salt that was left there. But salt does something funny. If it's exposed um, to uh, the sun, uh, as the water evaporates over thousands of years, it forms what they call evaporites, um, which we have here. We, we have evaporites about 10 miles to the north, which is where the mountains start, where the end of the lake would have been, and then farther to the south, we have a big, 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 big chain of them, and these evaporites have preserved some of the agricultural work that was done underneath them. Not all of it. I mean, water flows, water, water is very destructive, um, but they formed early, and they're still there. So we can look at them, and we can still see these canals, and, and they lead under the sand. It's, it's just incredible what, what actually is there when you look yeah, at the right wow, eyes. That, that is pretty amazing. Um, so there's a belief out there, and, uh, and I'm glad I've got you on here because you can put it into it or corroborate these beliefs that, uh, that I was finding out. <laughs> there's a lot of them. Uh, but uh, when it comes to the city of Atlantis, um, a lot of people say that uh, the city's population was half God and half humans. And the main reason uh, a lot of these people have went and looked and people have lost their lives looking for the city is because of the gold that's supposed to that should have uh, survived their tsunami or whatever happened there. What are your thoughts on that? 
It's for the water that survived the tsunami? Yeah. Oh, gold? <sighs> well, um, I can't... There's a, there's a name, like, or it's like Oritanium, or something like that is what Plato calls I don't have it in front of me. I, I didn't... Um, this stuff, there's nothing verifiable about it. It's not... The, the metal that they talk about uh, has never been found. There's no trace of it. Now, Mauritania um, is, is... I mentioned salt was their primary export. Uh, precious metals is kind of second. So it, it's there's still a lot of mines, and it's, it's a very mineral-rich area, so it fits conceptually. Um, but specifically, all of that's nonsense. Honestly, it's nonsense. It, it's not coming from anywhere. Uh, it's, it's not in a dialogue, if Plato's our primary source. Let me, let me, let me tell you the other two sources, I don't want to, I just don't want to forget them. So there's, we have Plato, and he's our primary source, and then we have two corroborating um, ancient sources. The first one is this guy named Herodotus, and he uh, wrote and lived a little before Plato. So he was writing around uh, the 480 BCE, Plato's uh, alive around 480. What I don't even know. He died, Plato died like four forty or three forty, something like that. So they're not contemporaries. So Plato's, Plato's following him. Herodotus wrote this book called The Histories, and it was really it is accepted in Western culture as the first real attempt of our society where someone tried to write it down and be a real historian versus whatever came before epic poems and and however you remember stuff. And so what Herodotus did, the first third of the book is he kind of writes down. Everything he knows about all the peoples everywhere, so that you know you have kind of like a guide, and then the second uh, two thirds of the book is him explaining what the Greeks were doing and what was going on. So the first part is kind of like a travel log because that's how you know they didn't have Google Maps twenty five hundred years ago. And what Herodotus tells us, he and this is towards the beginning of the of the histories, he says, yeah, when you go to Egypt, then if you head west, you head into this place called Libya. And if you ride, uh, once you get into Libya, if you ride for 10 days, you run into these people that call themselves Atlanteans. And then if you go for another 10 days, you, you run into these people that call themselves like the Aterarians. So basically Atlanteans with a slight uh, a dialect. And he says, um, these people are really weird. And he says, they go all the way from Libya to the Atlas Mountains, which on a map is, this is where this, you would end up culturally if, if, the Rishat structure got destroyed, you kind of go the higher ground, right? So it's very natural, this is where you go. And he says these Atlanteans are really weird. He says they live on big piles of salt. Um, they refuse, they'll tell you their name, but they refuse to let you write it down. They, they won't write down the names of their kings or, or, or they won't record their past. Uh, he says they're vegetarians. He says they don't dream. And he says they spend their days cursing the sun. But but he tells us these are the Atlanteans. So so we have a, a, a work, the histories, Herodotus, the histories, which is wildly accepted, you know, is legitimate, and he's talking about the remnants of uh, people called Atlanteans who are kind of weird, not like everyone else. Um, now, now, he's talking, and this is many thousands of years later, but again, culturally, this is, this is where they'd end up. So, so that's interesting. And then we have this other thing that corroborates what Plato said, uh, and it's called the Pyrenees Map. And Graham Hancock is very famous in this space. He opens his his most famous book, uh, Fingerprints of the Gods, from 1995, he opens it talking about the Pyrenees map. And there's a lot of uh, history uh, and interpretations and all of that around this map. What the map and it, the map was uh, created in 1530 um, by Pyrenees, who was an Ottoman navigator. And he commissioned the map from all of the ancient uh, maps that, that the Ottomans had. And he wanted one map 
that incorporate all that knowledge that he could take with him. So when they started sailing around, you know, he and they're going to new places, you know, he, he might have a chance because one of these old maps might have had some of that on there. Uh, and the contention, it's a contentious map. It's what it seems to, remember, 1530, you know, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. So we're only uh, a generation and a half, two generations away from the, the discovery of the new world. Uh, this map seems to show much more detail, legitimate detail around the coastlines of North America and South America than could have been known uh, when the map was made. Uh, it seems to show uh, that's the left-hand side. On the bottom side, it seems to show Antarctica, uh, and it seems to show the Antarctic continental shelf, um, which would only be visible uh, if the water during the last ice age, and if the water was lower, like like we like we know that it was. Um, and that's all interesting. But we've all been staring at this thing. It's it's, it's an easily accessible map. You can find it by searching on Google, and no one has ever really scrutinized the right-hand side. It clearly shows the coast of Africa, and of course, very well documented, the same level of detail that all the other coastlines have. But when you look at it, on the right-hand side, all the way over to the edge, there's this kooky little city surrounded inside a ring of water with, with, with rivers flowing to it, up a river from the ocean, and it is exactly, exactly where the Eye of the Sahara is. So... It, 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 you know, it, it would have been on an ancient map, and we have a compilation of those maps that actually shows it. So it's crazy. So, but but there it is. So so and and the, the, this place today, and, and it would have been when, when Peter Reese was around. It, you know, it it's a Sahara, it's a, it's a, it's a Sahara Desert. There isn't there's no river leading 345 miles up into the Sahara Desert to a city in, inside a ring of water. That, that that's not knowable. In 1530, it's not even knowable today unless you have the internet and you can't go look at it, and you would never reach that conclusion about this place. So it, it clearly, and no one contested it was that it's a map made from older maps, um, and it clearly shows a city exactly where the Rishat structure is, and the Rishat structure meets Plato's description of Atlantis without ignoring anything. 99.32%. Um, it we know people were there. It fits in historically with what we think is going on, and we have three three sources. That, that, that tell us oh, that's um, and, and going back to Plato and his writing, um, he mentioned a a duel uh, between Athens and Atlantis. Now, Athens is actually where Plato's from, correct? Yeah, Plato was writing during what, they, what we would call the classical period of Athens, which is it's, it's what we it's the the three hundred movie. It's, it's when we see the Greek pillars. He was writing at the height. Uh, well, you could, that's arguable, but just after the peak of um, of whatever that was. Uh, and um, he is in Critias, which is what you're reading from. Uh, Critias is recounting what the Egyptians told. Um, his his great great grandfather great 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 grandfather uh, Solon and yeah and, and what he's saying is it, there was a war the the, the Atlanteans they um, attacked and conquered Libya all the way up to Egypt they attacked and conquered parts of Europe and then they fought all the way through the Mediterranean up to where, where the Greeks were now remember these are proto Greeks um, but then the Greeks were like nope gotcha. and they beat okay, them so out. that that clears that up for me because I was kind of wondering and then how does in the same story that I was reading, that that came out of, um, the gates of Hercules uh, kept coming up uh, everywhere I 
read about Atlantis. Um, what's your what's your thoughts? Or does that exist, or is something else made up? Or no, it, it's widely accepted that that is the um, Strait of Gibraltar, which is basically leads you out of the Mediterranean and into the Atlantic Ocean. And there's another line, I don't have it in front of me, but there's another line right after that where uh, it goes something along the lines of, and, and, and you don't get it, dude, you know, out, outside of these straits, that's the real ocean. You know, that thing's big. Well, we're in, in the, the, the Mediterranean Sea that we think of as the ocean, it's a puddle, you know, compared to the actual ocean. And and they even mentions it in the continent on the other side of oh, it, the opposite okay. continent. All right. Um, man. Go ahead. Yeah. And then go go... Going back to the Azores, so, so people that like the Azores, I think the language that Plato uses, and again, I don't have it in front of me, but it's something like, he says something like directly outside of um, the Pillars of Hercules is the continent of Atlantis. Uh, that's why people, and, and so everyone has like a Google Maps mentality, and, and you know, we're looking at a map on a flat, on a flat you know, screen or whatever, and we want directly to mean you go straight out into the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. But when you actually look at how the uh, oceanic tides uh, work um, and the, um, the currents, what happens is uh, you, have, you come out of the Strait of Gibraltar, you've got these Atlas Mountains that we talked about, and then you hit the, the, that west, west Africa, that whole coast of West Africa, and that's where the currents take you. Um, and, and Plato says that, that Atlantis was on the way to the opposite continent. Uh, well, you can't get there. Look, Columbus in 1492 had the technology to sail straight across the Atlantic Ocean, um, but you know we're, we're talking about uh, not not that level of sophistication. And even if you look at the Bronze Age Greeks, which would have been much later, uh, you know they had triremes. They called them boats, and they went everywhere they went. If if they could not lose sight of land. That, that, that's what they would do. They're not stupid. They're not going to go out in the middle of nowhere when they can keep settling in and get where they're going. So when you come out of the Strait of Gibraltar, if you're in one of these boats, the currents take you south along the coast of Africa. You come past the Atlas Mountains. There's a big river. And then, boom, now you're on the way you know, to Atlantis down the coast of Africa. And then if you look at a map, the, 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 if, if you and I were in a boat and we had to get from uh, Africa or the Strait of Gibraltar to you know, the new world, South America, North America, we're not going to go straight. We, we'd go down the coast, and then the shortest distance is between the tip of Africa and the tip of South America when they come up. And the currents actually take you there, but but that is the way to the opposite continent. That's, these people aren't idiots. They're not going to take the hardest, most impossible way. They're going to take the easiest way. They're people, just like us. And and that's the way you would take. So, again, it fits yeah, uh, what Plato says. Man, such a, you know, for a philosopher, uh, so, such, such a smart guy, uh, when you get into his readings, uh, not just on Atlantis, but some other stuff, uh, I mean, he, he was, uh, I guess you could say he was before his time, right? Uh, he, he was just, uh, just brilliant. And uh, I, I'm one of those guys, like um, the other gentleman that you mentioned, that made all the predictions for the future. Uh, I, I, don't, I, I don't take that. Uh, education, I'm not yeah. one to take that stuff lightly and just blow it off. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a researcher. Uh, I trade and, and that's what I like doing so uh, I look in all that and, and uh, Pluto I just you kind of uh, when I set up this interview and uh, heard about your book it kind of awakened a, a new side of me to look into this and uh, man I just couldn't stop <laughs> um, yeah 
Well, look, he, he's an interesting dude. Plato is, um, yeah, I, you know, I, 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 we, we would, so here's the problem. You and I and everyone listening, we all have this in, inbred arrogance that we are somehow sitting on the pinnacle of civilization and we're smarter than our parents and their parents and the people that came before and God forbid someone who, you know, 2,500 years ago, I mean, what were they doing? They were, they were dragging their wives around by their hair and eating uh, dino, dino ribs, right? I mean, but, but that's not Plato at all. Plato has, has stories about uh, time travel where he talks about, um, the, the, the winds of the universe winding backwards and people getting younger and people who had died coming back and like people almost like de-aging and then instead of like being unborn. Um, he's, he's just got, he, he's a wildly imaginative writer. The cool thing about Plato though, is he always tells you, he says, I'm the, this is a myth, or he'll say, let's pretend, let's think, or he'll say, I believe this is real. So he's a very good, he chronicles very well in his different dialogues what he's trying to say. And whether he's making an example, an allegory, or whether he's just re repeating something um, that he believes to be true. Yeah, with uh, Atlantis he believes true. to be true. Uh, he, um, in, in his, that's what I think uh, really got me involved in his writings, where uh, it, it's mainly dialogues, is what it, if you really look at it, all of his writings, even his books, uh, you know, he was, at one time, I read that uh, he was going to write uh, three books on the human, uh, how the humans uh, act and their behaviors and so forth. And uh, he only uh, he only wrote one. But uh, it, it's still, if you read that one book, it, it's uh, it's amazing the ideas that he had about the uh, human nature, uh, the nature of human beings. He, he, he responds, I don't agree, I, I understand, for the things he, he has written that I understand, um, they're hugely insightful. Um, I find what he's able to do with, so Plato did a couple things. One of the main things he was doing in those dialogues you're talking about is he's trying to figure out and trying to work his way through the injustices that he sees in, in his city and with the government and what it does to people and all that stuff with uh, he's, he's trying to figure out is is there a way is justice really a thing it, it, it you know is 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 justice an idea that we strive to or is it just uh, justice just whatever the guy with the biggest rock does and, and hits you on the head with it um and so a lot of what he's doing is trying to figure that out he's also defending socrates socrates was his teacher um, in Socrates, uh, there was a play written called The Clouds uh, that kind of was the first hit piece we would call it today. We see hit pieces all the time today. Um, and it was, it was very uh, derogatory towards Socrates. And in fact, Socrates was ultimately executed, largely because a lot of the false allegations that were put in this sat satirical play. Um, so after the fact, Plato was trying to kind of tell you like the real story, you know. Um, He's doing all of that, and then towards his later dialogues, he starts to speculate on, um, you know, if everything gets wiped out, I, you know, I've criticized stuff, we figured this out, or this isn't knowable, but, but what would it look like if we could if we could make a perfect society, what, what might that society look like? So yeah, kind of and he, uh, a, a lot, a lot of his uh, questioning on his, uh, how the people are treated in his government, you can relate that back to right now, today's time, a lot of it. <laughs> all of it yeah no he banged us we're struggling with the same thing right you know look i mean i, I know your show is a little political i try and stay out of, out of politics just because i've got a 
sell books and everything, and people don't need to know all my internal thoughts. But the, the stuff that um, we struggle with today, if you turn the news on right now, the things that have gone on in the past month are the exact same things that Plato was struggling with and trying to figure out. Um, and uh, he, he didn't really get to an answer, although he, he does a good job of free. If, if, if you're a reasonable person and you're going to try, he lays some pretty good groundwork down. Uh, the challenge we might argue today is that we don't necessarily have yeah, reasonable people who are um, trying. So I guess this brings me to my other question. Um, yeah. <laughs> that, uh, and, uh, and you don't have to answer it now that uh, where you mentioned you're trying to sell books. But uh, I'm going to ask you, I've got to, I've got to uh, uh, as a former U.S. military special agent, um, what are your thoughts on, on the current stage of our country? Well, so here's what I want to tell you. I, I'm a, um, I believe in foundational principles, and I believe that we should be able to interpret whether something is right or wrong through context, not through actors. So, for example, if I were to walk up and hit you in the head with a rock, and I'm heralded as a great person, but you walk up and hit me in the head with a rock, unprovoked both ways, uh, and you're heralded as a bad person, then there's something wrong with the idea of good and bad. And so what I struggle with now is those foundational principles um, are either hard to identify or don't or, or have been pushed to the side for something else. Yep, is, yep. Is, makes is perfect sense to me. Okay, and go ahead. I'm sorry. Yep. No, no, I, I was agreeing with you. Anytime you agree with me, uh, I agree with you. Kind of like our government. Um, so uh, <laughs> let's see. Um, before we go, uh, I did want to ask you a little bit about your podcast. I noticed that you've uh, you have a weekly pod- podcast for uh, I think it's uh, concerning the uh, writing industry mainly. And uh, what I'm seeing is pretty popular, like thirty thousand views. Yeah. So I mean, that's pretty amazing. Well, I got lucky. So what I did when I started writing books, and I've written. Um, I mentioned 40, 40 something, 45 books, something like that. But I just, I just, I published my first book in February of 2021. So I, I did all this during the pandemic. And I've written, I think, I, I think I have a, my, my tool told me, I think I've written like one and a half million words or something in the past two years. Um, when I decided I wanted to write, I was like anybody else. I don't know how to do it. And I, I'm smart enough to know if I write for a while and go back and read it. It's like, this doesn't really feel like the books I buy, it's not as good. Um, so I searched to the internet like everyone else does, and I watched the stupid YouTube videos of people telling me how to write and, and all that, and, and, and none of the advice helped me at all. In fact, I followed it. Was, it was awful. <laughs> it was a disaster. It just countered to how I work. So I was like, you know, I'm having a little bit of success. I want to get some more of the maybe less-known authors some recognition, and I also want to talk to people that have written books and, and finished books and, and published books, self-published or however, so that they can tell you, talk about how they do it. And so it's kind of a podcast by writers for writers. You know, it's, it's very niche. Um, but about two months ago, I interviewed, uh, one of the writers I interviewed was a guy who had written for Star Trek Voyager. And um, that was the first video, like 18,000 views or something. And I was like, wow, that, that was unexpected. Because I mean, before that, I was getting, you know, 50, 80, 100. If I got 100, I was pretty happy. But that kind of like, then I got a bunch of subscribers and that kind of kicked it up. And then maybe two or three weeks after that, 
um, I had a lady on, and she'd gotten divorced, and her book was called Naked After Divorce, and had that word naked in it. And it got 30,000 views. And that was it. And then since then, I haven't had a video. I think it gets less than 1,000. And I've had some. I had a guy I did three weeks ago. His book was called America Should Be Grateful to Haiti. I think it's got over 72,000 views. So it's it's like a quasi yeah, success. Um, it's amazing. You know? It's incredible. Um, I'm focused on writing. And the channel is Frequency99. Guys, he's the host of Focus on Writing. Now, can you find that on uh, Spotify as well and Apple? Or? You know, it's only YouTube. I, you know, I didn't. I, I'm, I'm, I'm now that I'm having a little bit of success. I'm, I'm contemplating, you know, trying to do a podcast for real. But it's a video podcast, so I record. You know, we're both on camera when I do it. And I show their book, and they can show their book or whatever. Um, so I don't know if I'm going to go to those channels or not. You know, it's one of those things. I'm now nervous about. Upsetting the Apple Card is working, so why 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 did why yeah, diffuse my audience? If, I just if they're think all that, um, to this place? a lot of you know a lot of people that listen to podcasts they haven't went over to the uh, video spectrum just yet, and uh, if you could take the audio from your YouTube, put it on Spotify and Apple with a host, shoo uh, man, I'm telling you, <laughs> I mean. yeah, look, I, I almost certainly will do it. it it's um, uh, I just don't have to do it, right? Is there always say get around to it, right? I, I got it's like anything else. I just got to do it. But it's I would say I mean, it's on my radar. I, I know I know that it's out there, and I know with the success I'm having, um, I don't the audience. I don't think I think I've got about. Well, I don't want to say it quite that way, but this this is my audience. It's not a huge audience. My audiences are people that want to write. I guess well, if you want to write a book, that might be a big audience. But people that have actually published books, it's not as many as you might think. You know, it's only. Um, it's tens of thousands, not not more. Uh, so it's it's a very niche podcast, but yeah, it's doing great. And I couldn't, I don't understand it. But so someone like myself who is uh, for what in the middle of so writing their first book, you recommend it, correct? Well, you know what? We should we we should you should come on my podcast. Uh, once you get your book done, here's what I tell people about about writing. I, I would honestly, if, if you seriously, and this is no joke, yeah, if you're writing, you, you should flip through till you find someone that's interesting because I've got 30 or 40 videos up now, and each one is a person talking about their process for writing, and it's all different. It's all wildly different, but but this way you can hear how success. I don't want to say successful people, people who have successfully written a book the process they follow because it's all about finding you know your niche the, the other advice i'd have for you um is whatever you're writing hopefully you picked something that you you picked a story that you want to know the ending of because starting a book is one thing finishing it is 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 exponentially harder it's very 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 difficult to actually finish the book so you've got to want to finish it but when when, when you really get into writing you know you live in those worlds for a while so you've got to also want to know what happens. Which, and if you can combine all yeah, those things, uh, probably this book we'll finish, actually probably is very uh, well, successful. It, it, it's I'm doing a series, a podcast series on it, anyways. It's uh, it's about uh, America sleeping and the enemies creep in. So, of course, it's political. <laughs> okay, it, it's a is it, it's a, is story, it a story or is it a history? A lot of uh, facts in it. You can't actually call it a fiction book because uh, I name dates, uh, executive orders. Things of that nature. 
Oh wow! Okay, all right. Well, you know what? That that's a story. I'm, I'm, I want to see how it ends, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Right will. So. No way I can. Finish. We, we know where we are for sure. <laughs> all right. So so we're just about out of time. Uh, what I'd like for you to do, though, any social media or anything like that you'd like to promote. Uh, it's been an honor having you. Really enjoyed this interview. Learned a whole lot, a whole lot, and uh, I've actually got some work to do. I need to go do some more research on Atlantis and Pluto. <laughs> but uh, yeah, any social media or anything like that, please. Yeah, I will. I will send that over to you. Um, but mostly, my, it's just I'll, I'll send you a link to my author page on Amazon and the podcast, yeah. and then the yeah, the absolutely. Website. Um, did you have anything? For I appreciate audience? that. I you appreciate it very like, much. Thank do you. you have a website or or whatever. Well, yeah, so the easy, Frequency99.com is the publisher website. The Atlantis book is still sitting on the top of it. And that, that links over to um, Amazon where you can buy it. Uh, it's also it's on the Amazon Unlimited, so if you pay for that, you can get it for free. Uh, and uh, Yeah, I'm definitely going to check it out. I mean, I think <laughs> Good it's great. More. Um, all right, so uh, once again, uh, David, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure having you. Guys, you've been listening to the Red Pill Current News Podcast with your host, the Kentucky Guy, and special guest, best-selling author, David Edward. Hope you guys have a blessed day. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, God bless, and God bless America. Thank you all.